Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. Does anything sound different? Does it sound different in any way, shape, or form? Does it? If it does, let me know. I I changed the placement of the microphone. I I got ready to go live and I looked down like, I think the microphone is too low. I think think I've had the microphone too low now for years. So I'm going to increase the height of the microphone on, 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 well, how it's sitting. And if, if you can tell a difference, if it sounds a little bit better, does it sound a little bit more professional, maybe less echo? I don't know. If you notice anything, let me know, newsif at yahoo.com, oh, but that's 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 neither here nor there, right? Well, I, I mean, it's, I guess it's somewhere. I do need to know, but welcome, everyone. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Monday, July the 11th. 2022. It is currently 3.36 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas, where the current temperature is 103 degrees. And the only reason I tell you that is because it's extremely hot outside. And well, the series that we are working on, it's kind of gotten hot with my frustration and irritation, but we're hoping that all of that is about to change. Yes, that that that's the hope is that everything is about to change, change and by the end of this episode it's not going to be frustration or irritation, it's going to be like wow, that makes perfect sense, that explains everything. We can all calm down, we can all relax, we can all stop worrying about it. I know you're like, you're not worried about it. I know some of us have been worried about it, but we we will finally have a definitive answer. That is the hope. Only time will tell, all right? So are you ready? We have been working on a series on Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. We put forth kind of our own hypothesis, our own theory that was put forth by one of our listeners. They kind of came up with the basic idea. I took it, tried to flesh it out a little bit. And then we started saying, here's our theory. Here's our idea. And then I decided, you know what? What's the best way to test our theory? What's the best way to uh, test our idea? I know we'll just grab random sermons that have been preached Dealing with Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, sermons that are supposed to be an exposition of Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, and we'll listen, hoping, you know, hoping that we are going to get, well, something that provides a different perspective, a different interpretation. Now, I know what you're thinking, but wait a minute. Why didn't you know that the sermons that you reviewed didn't have that uh, you know that that weren't any good or had problems because I don't listen to them first because that would make this show feel like that it's a rehearsed show and that it's a performance more than an actual theological discussion. So we grabbed some random sermons, started playing them, and we're waiting. We were like, okay, come on, give us a different interpretation of Philippians three verse ten. Come on, come on, hit us with it, hit us. And what we got was absolutely crazy. It, it, even though it was a four-part series, supposedly on Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, the reality is it had nothing to do with Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. It took individual phrases out, basically ripped it out of its context, and then just did a topical study on things related to those phrases. It was very frustrating, 
very irritating, but it demonstrated once again, the principle that I'm constantly screaming about that in some churches, the doctrine may be great. The theology may be great. That all may be wonderful, but in many cases, you're not actually studying the Bible because the sermon serves as a substitute to the actual text. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to to Philippians 3.10, part one and part two. You will hear exactly what I am talking about. That will, that will, those two episodes will serve as the go-to example of whenever you try to tell people about that. You know, hey, I think that sermon kind of was a substitute for the actual study of the text. How dare you say that? And you say, well, Listen to these episodes, and I think you'll understand this principle that I'm trying to get across. So at least we accomplished that, but that's not, that wasn't the goal. The goal is to understand Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read verse 10 specifically, but maybe the verse that comes before it, maybe the verse that comes after it. We'll read a few verses, and then I'll we'll kind of offer at least our possible interpretation. Then we're going to go to my email inbox and look at two emails that I have received in regards to Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. And then we're going to start reviewing a sermon. Now, the one thing I need to do really quick is I forgot to load the sermon here. So I need to go to my downloads and... Here is the sermon, and it's, oh, 55 minutes. That means there's going to be no way and possible to review this all in one one, uh, podcast episode. It's probably going to take two. I don't like that. Who knows? Uh, We'll just see what happens. We'll just see what happens. But just buckle in because it's going to take us a while. But are you ready to do all of this? First, let's go to Philippians chapter 3, all right? I'm not going to go all the way back and explain how we ended up on this subject It's a long story. We're not going to go through all of that. Just go back and listen to part one and part two, and you'll understand, all right? But but the goal here is hopefully to, even though it's hot outside, that it will just cool everything down, and all of my frustration and irritation will just disappear, and it's going to be wonderful. That's my hope. We will see. All right, here we go. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church of Philippi, he says these words, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. All right, so the Apostle Paul wants to know him. That's referring to Christ. If you go back, I'll just show show you this. We'll go back to verse 8 of Paul writing to the church of Philippi in verse 8, he say, yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith that I may know him. The hymn clearly goes back to knowing Christ, knowing him, all right? Wants to know him, the power of his resurrection, obviously that, that another proof that he's referring to Christ, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, exactly 
What does this mean? It sounds good. This is one of those things that someone may look, this is an amazing scripture and everybody will like, amen. And if you post a, post it on a social media, everybody will give it a thumbs up and say, amen, praise God. That's awesome. And, but if you ask those same, same people to go, what exactly does this mean in any tangible way? You're going to get a lot of just maybe a lot of words that absolutely signify Nothing. And what I've seen in a lot of sermons, there's a lot of sermons preached on Philippians 3.10 with a lot of words, but when it's all said and done, you're like, okay, what does that actually mean in anything tangible, anything concrete? You just used a lot of words that sounded spiritual, but that don't mean anything. It, it, what does this actually mean? So we came up with a theory, a thesis, a hypothesis. And this is what we discovered, all right? Or what we, this is what we, well, it's the idea that we, a listener discovered, shared with me. So I'm going to say, we discovered it. I, I flushed it out a little bit, all right? So I'm trying to make sure I'm specific here. But when I say discovered, it's the idea that we came up with, and it's the one that we have presented, but we are willing to have that idea challenged, and we are willing to give up that idea for something better, all right? But here we go. I'm just going to go back and kind of explain the context briefly, right? And then try to explain why we came to the conclusion that we did. All right, here we go. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to, uh, to write the same things to you. To me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the uh, concision. All right? Um, for we... For we are the circumcision, all right, if I can read correctly today, Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, for we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof, he might trust in the flesh, I more. So he's getting ready to establish this concept that, hey, if you're out there trusting in the flesh, trusting in your works, trusting in your righteousness. If anyone could do that, the apostle Paul's like, I could trust in the flesh. I could trust in my actions. And he starts explaining why. Though, uh, and then again, I'll read verse four. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof, he might trust in the flesh, I more. No one could trust in the flesh more than me, is what the apostle Paul is, goes on to say. Verse five, circumcised of the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He starts laying out all these things that he had done, all these things that described the Apostle Paul, his actions, his character. And it sounds like, wow, super spiritual, sounds super godly, sounds wonderful continue. Verse 7, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. So he takes all of this fleshly works-based righteousness, and he counts it all but loss for Christ. And you're like, okay, what, what, what's what's going on here? Well, we'll just continue to, to take this apart. In fact, look at this. This is very important. Verse 8, 
Yea, doubtless, and I count all things, but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Once again, the context, he's referring to this earthly, fleshly, law-keeping righteousness, this righteousness that is accomplished by your works and your actions. He's like, I count that all but dung that I may have Christ. Seemingly to indicate that if you're going to have Christ, it's not going to be based off some fleshly righteousness, based off some works you have done. If you want Christ, you've got to give up all of that trust and clinging to and looking to and taking pride in that fleshly righteousness that may, it may describe your life. You've got to count that but dung so that you may have Christ. And to make sure that we understand the point, verse 9, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness. Now, this really drives the point home. Look, I want to be found in Christ, not with my own righteousness. No, I, I cannot bring any of my righteousness. Any, any of my righteousness that I bring to Christ is nothing more than filthy rags. It's never going to be good enough. It's always corrupted. It's always tainted in some way, shape, or form because of the sinful nature that lies within you. You cannot bring your righteousness to Christ, right? So not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. The only righteousness he can, the only righteousness he can hold on to, the only righteousness he can cling to, the only righteousness he can trust in is a righteousness that comes by faith. That is an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness, but an imputed righteousness. So you will either bring the fleshly righteousness of your own good works, or you will, by faith, get, have a righteousness imputed to you, accredited to your account, not infused into you, but accredited to your account. That's what you must cling to. That's what you must trust in. And all that other righteousness must be considered as dung and get, basically, you reject it, you just throw it away, because the only righteousness you need is, is, is the imputed righteousness that is obtained by faith. Right? Now, all of that makes sense. Then verse 10, that I may know him. Okay, now wait a minute. Okay, wait a minute. All right. So, if we kind of go in some kind of chronological order, verse 9 would be basically justification by faith, right? Right? Justified by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. So Paul seems to be indicating, he, he, clearly verse 9 indicates he's placed his faith in Christ. He's placed his faith and that's the righteousness he's holding on to. That seems to be clear from everything from verse 3 to 9, that seems clear. I could be trusting in this. I count that, but dung, here's what I need. It's a, it's a righteousness that, come, that I obtained by faith. That seems clear, right? So that describes justification. But when we get to verse 10, what do we do? Because Paul all of a sudden seems to say, okay, I have faith, but now I want to know him. Now, you're kind of like, well, wait a minute, Paul. Okay, wait a minute. So, are you talking about knowing him in a deeper way? You could, like, okay, maybe he wants to know him in a deeper way. All right. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. 
right? So what, now I want to make sure this is very clear. What does that mean in a practical way? Someone who's been justified by faith now wants to know him and the power of his resurrection. What does it mean to want to know? I want to know the power of his resurrection. Some would say, is, is it just a, a academic head knowledge? Most would say, no, it is not. Some would argue it is a experiential, it's a deeper, it's an intimate knowledge. So I truly want to know the power of the resurrection, all right? How do you know this? How do you obtain this? What does this appear? What does this look like? Like, what what does this look like? And I want to know the fellowship of his suffering, and I want to be made conformable unto his death. Now, some may argue, well, Verse 9 is justification by faith. Verse 10, this is describing sanctification. All right, so sanctification is being described. So what Paul is saying, now that I'm saved, I want to be sanctified. And somehow when we talk about the power of the resurrection, that is to be known or that, that's, that's to show up in our sanctification. Well, how does that work? Is it just Paul saying, I want to, I want to be sanctified? Is it Paul saying, I want, I want, like exactly how does this fit sanctification? The, uh, the fellowship of his sufferings. Now remember, there's some disagreement again in church history on this. Some say, John Gill, fellowship of his suffering means we are united with him in suffering and now we reap the benefits of that suffering. So this is not referring to us suffering. This is referring to the benefits. Others would say, no, 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 no. This is a part of sanctification. Sanctification includes the power of his resurrection, which shows up in our life somehow, I guess, to make us holy and righteous. We want to know it and then we will experience this. The fellowship of his suffering means we, in a sense, join him in suffering, and that suffering means we die to self, we take up our cross, we deny self, and we no longer follow self. And then to be conformable unto his death is, well, that's the where we continue to move forward in sanctification is we become dead to ourself. And Paul is like, this is what I want to know. I want to know the power of the resurrection to make me godly, I want to experience suffering of me dying to self, denying self, dying to sin. I want to be made conformable unto his death until I no longer exist and Christ lives in and through me. Now, that sounds good. That sounds good, right? I can preach it that way, but it the, what, what does it exactly look like? That Paul is just saying, hey, I want to I know the power of the resurrection. And here's my concern. And you've got to at least hear me out. I know many people will reject what I'm about to say. But here is my concern. And I'm just going to continue to explain my concern over and over and over. If we take the power of the resurrection to be some power that we experience, some power that we get as a Christian in the process of sanctification, then what you're claiming is that when one becomes a Christian, they now receive a supernatural power that now works in them and through them to make them godly, to make them holy, to make them righteous. Now, the first obvious question is, well, wait a minute. If that's the power of the resurrection, if that's the power that basically brought Christ, resurrected him, if that power is now in me, you think you that the very minimum we could re- reach sinless perfection, right? You think at the very minimum that kind of power could once and for all destroy 
the sinful nature, eradicate the sinful nature, and I can be godly and holy. You think that that kind of power would clearly produce in a Christian's who know true doctrine and that there would be no disagreement and we would all know the truth and understand the truth. But I got 2,000 years of church history going, man, Christians are a mess. Christians sin this way. I mean, we got 1 Corinthians. I don't even need to look to to, to church history after the Bible. I can just go to the Bible and look. You had every kind of bro, you had disunity, sin. You had all kinds of things going on in the church of Corinth. Paul didn't say, hey, guys, you got the power. Stop doing it. No, he, he's like, you're like babes in Christ. You're carnal. You're fleshly. So how can you explain that we have supposedly all of this power to produce sanctification, yet nobody can be sinless, yet Nobody can agree on any Bible doctrine. Yet, no one can agree on any Bible interpretation. I start having questions. That's the fellowship of his suffering. I can work through that, right? I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. I want to know truly what it is to die to self, deny self, and no longer follow self. I can understand that. I would like to know this power of the resurrection in some tangible way. Not something theoretical, but in a tangible way. Because if I did, well, then I would, I would just stop struggling with sin. And you say, well, no, 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 no. You're still, because it's always this kind of like back and forth. No, you have this power, but you're not going to be sinless. You have this power, but you're still going to struggle with sin. You have this power, but you, you still not, are not going to, you know, struggle with understanding the Bible. Well, wait a minute. On one hand, you talk about, I have all this power, and the next minute, you make all the excuses for why we don't see the manifestation of said power. Or it leads to, you have this power, and so therefore, if you commit this sin, this sin, this sin, you're not saved. It, and so therefore, you start judging people based off the practical righteousness in their life, which then begins to deny that we're saved by an imputed righteousness, and you almost imply that we're saved by an infused righteousness, which then begins to destroy the whole doctrine of grace, and you basically become a Roman Catholic. All right, so there's lots of issues here. But I understand that that's a popular view. So what we suggested is our idea was this, and I, and, I, and I could work this out a little bit more, but that's okay. Our idea was this, that yes, verse 9, we are saved by faith alone. And now what Paul here says, I want to know these things. I want to know him. Well, most everyone agrees that this is being written close to the end of Paul's life. He's in prison. Um, when he writes this, he's getting closer to the end of his life. And if you look at everything, I think we have this around 60, almost 60 AD when this is written. If we have Paul being converted between, say, 33, 34 AD, well, then that's a lot of years. And if you think of all the things that happened to the Apostle Paul between his conversion and him writing to the church of Philippi, we've heard other sermons saying Paul probably knew Christ better than any other person on earth. I mean, he had been given, taken up to the third heaven. He's been taught by Christ for, for three years in the desert. I mean, he has experienced miracles. He's been given direct revelation. He, God is using him to write scripture. When he says, I want to know him, it's Paul's like, hey, I, I want to know him more. It, it just seems like a meaningless phrase 
Because Paul already went into it, unless he's asking and wanting to know something that goes beyond what you can know here on this earth. And when he says, I want to know the power of the resurrection, hadn't Paul, in a sense, already seen the power of the resurrection in many different ways? So that doesn't seem to make any sense. That, that he, I want to know the power of the resurrection and sanctification. He's at the end of his life. I, I, wouldn't have already experienced that to some level, right? No, but it makes sense to, to so just stay with me. And I want to I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. Hadn't Paul already been denying self, dying to self and suffering? It seems an odd place for Paul to say these things unless what Paul is doing in verse 10 is this. I want to have this intimate knowledge of the power of the resurrection. When will he experience that? When Paul himself is absent from the body and present with the Lord. When Paul himself experiences, well, being in the presence of God and no more, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death, no more nothing. The fellowship of his suffering. If we go with John Gill's idea that that means that I'm good, I want to experience that full union with Christ, that all of his, the benefits of his death and his suffering, I finally get to fellowship and experience all of the benefits that flowed from his suffering. Because guess what? When will you experience that? When you're before God. You will be, you will be, you'll, you will be like him. You will no longer have a sinful nature, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering. Be conformable unto his death. When when you see him, you will be like him. You, the, you, the old you will be completely once and for all completely gone. We argued that Paul here is expressing a longing for something that is not experienced through the process of sanctification, uh, that this he is longing for something at the end of his life that he will experience in glorification. That's where we put it. That's our theory. Now, those are two concepts. Here is the email that we received. The first one is this. The first one was this. Verse 9 describes just, someone wrote me and said, uh, said, my interpretation of Philippians 3, 9 through 11. Verse 9 describes justification. Verse 10 describes sanctification. Verse 11 describes glorification. Verse 11 reflects Paul's personal unworthiness for eternal life, even though he knows it, he has it because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. And they said that I'm using uh, the New King James Version. All right. So that, they, that, they go with the uh, nine is justification, 10 is uh, sanctification, and 11 is glorification. Now, verse 11 is, if by any means I might obtain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now, I, my way of reading it is he, he will experience all of those things in verse 10 if by any means he attains unto the resurrection of the dead. If he experiences the resurrection from the dead, he will then know all of those things in verse 10. That, that's the way I'm seeing it. Now, I understand this person sees it differently. And you know what? I appreciate it so much. Because here is someone who took the time to go, hey, here, that's what we wanted. We wanted someone to challenge our thesis, our hypothesis. We wanted someone to challenge it. So thank you so very much. We may end this still disagreeing, which is not that uncommon in Christianity because no one can agree on any interpretation. But I appreciate you took the time to email us. So then I, what I really loved is they did this. 
I'm getting so many emails right now. I'm trying to ignore all the other emails. All right. Um, I received this today at 11.59 a.m. There's a link to a sermon, and it says this, an absolutely phenomenal hour-long sermon, so much better than the two sermons we listened to on the podcast. The preacher's name, I think this is Steve Lawson, was laser-focused on the text before him. Well, that's awesome. I love that he came to the same conclusion on the text that I had, all right? This is a model of great exposition. Now, that's, that's awesome. We're going to hear a model of great exposition. Now, and we know that the conclusion of the sermon goes against my theory, my thesis, and, and the one of uh, at least one of our listeners who put forth the idea that we are working on, the one that I agreed with, that Noah somehow... Philippians 3.10 is Paul is longing for something that is not going to be experienced in this life because by the time he writes Philippians 3.10, he would have already experienced, if those, if those things describe things you experience in life, Paul would have already experienced all of those, right? If, if the power of the resurrection is just, I mean, who else could have seen the power of the resurrection other than the apostle Paul? I mean, well, he, he saw the resurrected Christ people raised from the dead. I mean, there was so many things Paul was involved in. We, we could go all day and say he would have experienced that. Fellowship of his suffering, if we think that relates to actual suffering. Paul had already, I mean, he was in prison at the time. So it, it just seems weird that Paul's like, my goal, some translation, is to know these things. Paul, you already know these things. Unless he's wanting to know something in a way that you can't experience on earth, but you can experience it in your glorification. That's why we're going with that view. But if Steve Lawson gives us a, what is it called? A model of great exposition that puts forth a view that's con that's different than ours, then you have to listen to a perspective that's different than yours. That's the only way to have your view challenged. So what we're going to do for the next 30 minutes is we're going, probably maybe the next 40 minutes, we're going to entertain this and see where we end up. But I had to go through all the those different perspectives just to set us up with this. I know you're like, we've already talked about it, but I got to keep putting the different ways of interpreting it. So let me go through this again. Interpretation number one, Philippians 3, 9 speaks of justification by faith. Philippians 3, 10 speaks of sanctification. Philippians 3, 11 speaks of glorification. All right. My view, Philippians 3, 9 is justification by, by faith. Philippians 3, 10 is Paul expressing that his goal is to truly experience three things, the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, and to be conformable unto the death of Christ. And he longs for these three things, but clearly these are not things that, that are going to be experienced on earth because Paul would have already experienced most of those things by the time he writes the letter to the church of Philippi. So we say that that is referring to something he wants to experience and it will only happen in the resurrection from the dead, in his glorification. So I think Philippians 3, 9 is justification by faith. Philippians 3, 10, Paul's desire to experience these things in the most full way possible. And that will not happen unless he experiences the resurrection of the dead. Unless he experiences the resurrection of the dead, he will never experience those three things. That 
is our perspective. Now, we're going to listen to Steve Lawson give supposedly a great exposition, a model of great exposition. We may disagree, but you know what? If it actually deals with Philippians 3.10, then it will be a great exposition compared to what we have heard in our other sermon reviews where they ignored the actual text. So I'm ready to hear this. I hope you are. Let's start our review now. I want you to take God's Word. You knew I'd say that. I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. Today, I want to bring you a message entitled, The Greatest Testimony Ever Given. Philippians chapter 3, and I want to begin my reading in verse 3. We'll start our exposition in the middle of verse 4, but I want to get a running start. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 3. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss." For the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is Paul's personal testimony. Okay, so he read the section again. He did a much better job reading it because I was being too distracted while I was trying to read it, but I made it through it. I, I hope I didn't mess anything up too bad, but I did go back through and try to explain everything. And as he's getting ready to indicate, this is Paul's testimony. And I think it's a testimony of him realizing, look, uh, righteousness that comes by the flesh of no value, it's useless. I have to just consider it dung so that I can have the imputed righteousness that is obtained by faith. All right. I think, I don't think there's any other than maybe from Roman Catholicism, I think most of us who are not Catholic would clearly, I think, come to an agreement on how to interpret Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. I don't think there would be any problem. 
The problem seems to start in how to handle verse 10. And, well, we've already heard a lot of some of our sermon reviews so far in Philippians 3.10 and this series that we're doing in Philippians 3.10. We've already seen some major issues. We'll see how he's going to handle it. And again, I already know, based off the emailer who sent this to me, that this is going to go against the thesis, the hypothesis that we have put forth in how to interpret Philippians 3.10. And that's what we want. We wanted something to go against what we came up with because that's how you test your interpretations. That's how you challenge yourself. If all you ever do is listen to people who already agree with you, you'll always think you're right. So I am glad someone sent this to me. I'm glad they put forth their idea and we're, we're going to listen and see if this works. And I believe it is the greatest testimony that has ever been given by any Christian. And the reason that I say that is because arguably the apostle Paul is the greatest Christian who ever lived. And I think a case could be made that the testimony of the greatest Christian who ever lived would be giving the greatest testimony. Now, I definitely have to throw this out because this is so important. And we had one listener who indicated how they would feel listening to a sermon like this. And I think it has to be taken into consideration. He just told you, hey, Paul is the greatest Christian who ever lived. So if the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian who ever lived, who was saw the resurrected Christ, taught by Christ in the desert for, what, three years, all of those miracles, all the things that Paul was involved in, if you take all of those things that happened between 33, 34 A.D. and around 61, 62 A.D. and the writing uh, to the Church of Philippi, if that person who went through all of those things, who's been given direct revelation to God, taken up to the third heaven, been, is used to write scripture. If that Christian says, my goal is to know the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering and be made conformable unto his death. If that person is getting close to the end of his life and saying, I still have not experienced these things and my goal is to experience them, then any Christian sitting in the pew paying any attention would be like, well, I guess I'm just going to go ahead and leave and get to the restaurant before everyone else because there's no point listening to this sermon because if Paul couldn't experience these things, then there is no way I will ever be able to experience these things. So much of the handling of this text forgets that it's Paul saying, I want to, again, let me read to you from a different translation so that you'll see this. Philippians 3.10. My goal is to know him in the power of his resurrection. My, In other words, this is Paul's goal. Well, this can't be a goal that you say can be achieved and obtained in sanctification while on this earth, because it's, it, it's not, if Paul couldn't achieve it after all the things he had already experienced, then it's not even in the same realm of reality for me to even consider it. Why would I even pursue it? Paul couldn't even get there. I'm never going to get there, but see, it makes it, it, it becomes completely different if we're like, wait a minute. Paul is longing for something that he will not experience until the resurrection from the dead. And I will not experience these things until the resurrection of the dead. So if I know for sure that I'm going to be resurrected from the dead, then I know I will experience 
the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, and to be conformable unto his death. And how do I know I will be resurrected? Because I know that my salvation is not dependent on my righteousness, but on a righteousness that I obtain by faith, which is an imputed righteousness, which is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, and now everyone can, everyone can say, okay, now preach it to me because now the, I, this makes sense. But if you're telling me Paul never got there, but, but here this Sunday, before we're done, I'm going to give you four steps and how you can accomplish this. Well, wait a minute. If you've got the four step process so that I can uh, experience everything in Philippians 3.10, what Paul by the end of his life still didn't know the four step process? That interpretation falls apart right there. Hey, Paul couldn't do it, but we can because you've come to the right church and I've got the four-step process. I'm not saying, I'm not saying Steve Lawson's about to give us four steps, but I'm just saying that's how much so much of the preaching of this is, is here's what you need to do. Well, you're telling me Paul didn't do any of the things you're about to tell me to do? <laughs> what? He was taken up to the third heaven. I mean, he... All the experiences he had with God, if that wasn't sufficient, well, then there's not, like, there's no point in even listening. There's like, never mind. Paul couldn't get there. I can't get there. I'll, I'll, I'll worry about it later. I'll never worry about it because it's just an impossible thing. But if it's, wait a minute, I, I want to know these three things. I want to know the power of the resurrection. I want, I want to know the fellowship of suffering and I want to be conformable unto his death. Okay. I want that. That's my goal. Well, how do I, how will I ever experience that? The resurrection of the dead. That, that makes like, this is my desire and my desire will be ultimately one day fulfilled when I stand in his presence and I will be like him. I will know him fully. I will be like him. I will no longer have a sinful nature. The the curse of death is completely destroyed. There's no more death, no more pain, no more suffering. When all of that, then I will truly know the power of the resurrection, fellowship of his suffering, and be conformable to his death. That's the only, if I don't place it in glorification and I place it as something that can be achieved in sanctification, but Paul didn't get there writing in 61, 62 AD, then I've just given everyone in the church basically something that they cannot achieve. So then I don't know, then that just seems, that's where I'm having an issue. Let's continue. That there is. But more than that, this is a testimony that is so full of the gospel. A testimony is not the gospel per se. No one will ever be saved because of your testimony. Your testimony is about you. You're not the Savior. Christ is the Savior. And the only way anyone will ever come to into the kingdom of God is for us to talk about Christ. But our testimony is a great opportunity to talk about Christ. And what makes Paul's testimony so powerful and so dynamic is that it's not about Paul. It's about Christ. And the only thing that Paul says about himself here really is his own failures and what he was before he was converted. And he gives all honor and glory to Christ. And as you and I give our testimony, we need to be always pointing away from ourselves, pointing people 
to Christ. And as we give our testimony, we must make certain that it is full of the gospel, which alone is the power of God unto salvation. Now, every great testimony has three parts, and we see those three parts here in Philippians chapter 3. What we see in anyone's testimony is their life before conversion. Okay, this is good. He's actually dealing with the text compared to the previous sermons we reviewed. We're already very, very happy. I do love the fact that he's saying that a person's testimony is not to point to self, but to point to Christ, because I think that's a major problem with a lot of testimonies. So that, this is all great, all awesome, all wonderful. Everything's going great. I, I'm just curious how he's going to handle Philippians 3.10, because that's, that's what we want. That's all that matters for the, our purpose. We want his perspective. We already know where, where it's, it disagrees with our thesis, but I keep calling it our hypothesis, our theory, uh, because I, I want to make it very clear that we have not been, we've not made a dogmatic assertion yet. We've like, here's what we've come up with. Here you go. What do you think? We've already got an email saying, nope, we, I go with this view. All right, awesome. We wanted to be challenged. Here's a sermon that's amazing that goes with my view. Great, thank you. Now, we are going to listen to it and see what we find out. So, so far, everything is good. We, we, we feel confident he's going to deal with the text. I, I just, how is he going to handle it? Here we go. Then their life at conversion, and then their life after conversion. And that's what we see in verses 5 and 6, that's before conversion. In verses 7 through 9, that's at conversion. In verses 10 and 11, and really following, that is after conversion. So what we have in verses 5 and 6 is condemnation. In verses 7 through 9, justification. And in verses 10 and 11, sanctification. Paul is so linear in his thinking. He is so methodical and so well-organized. Even as he gives his testimony here, it is like a systematic theology. It is all tightly worded and logically laid out. So let, let's look at the greatest testimony that has ever been given. And I want you to note first, beginning in the middle of verse 4, this first heading is just simply before conversion. It's Paul's life, his, we would call it his B.C. days. This is, this is a really good outline that he's breaking this down. This is really good. I like this. This is, this is putting it all in its proper context. And I like, and uh, remember, the, 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 I think the rule has to be, I think it should be taught in every seminary and every Bible college, that remember, outlining, the goal of outlining is observation, not interpretation. If your outline contains an interpretation, I believe you're not the, uh, it's, it's just incorrect and you have to throw out your outline. Your outline is the observational tool where you take what's on the page of scripture and you place it on, on a different page so that you can observe what's there. You, most of your Bible study is observation. You've got to do like 80% observation before you can get to the last 20% of interpretation. The quality of your observation determines the quality of your interpretation. Poor observation, poor interpretation. So I think this is very fair to say that what he's getting ready to get here is before conversion. I, th I think that you could uh, demonstrate that from the text and 
I think that that would be perfectly okay. I don't think that's an interpretation. I think that's giving us just what he's, he's going to describe his life before faith in Christ, right? In fact, I may go with that because the text doesn't use the word conversion, but it does say, here's my life. And then he describes faith in Christ, right? So I would say before, Paul describes his life before faith in Christ or before faith in Christ. I may, I may go along with something like that. I try to be very, 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 very careful to use the actual language of the text and not to insert anything else because, again, the, observa- the goal of the outline is observation. Observation always precedes interpretation, and the quality of the op- observation determines the quality of one's interpretation. Once that begins to fall apart— then everything becomes corrupted and you end up. It's just a basic, basic rule of hermeneutics, basic rule of Bible study. Is Bible study, by definition, if you look at the Bible study methods, almost about, about 90, if you use the Bible study methods, about 95% of it is all observation. Everybody just wants to read and interpret. You're like, no, you got to read and observe. And the more you observe, the more you see, the more you see, the better you can interpret. Right? I don't want to go through an entire hermeneutics class right here, but that, I just, I like when I hear people give an outline, I'm like, okay, he maybe used some words that I wouldn't use there, but I can see that that is a fair observation of the text. Before conversion, before Christ. And he says, beginning in the middle of verse four, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh... I far more. And what Paul is saying here is that if anyone wants to put forth uh, their own morality and their own religious efforts in order to commend them to God, everyone in in the world is in line behind me, that no one can match my credentials. If trusting in yourself would get you to heaven. No one can check the boxes that I can check in what my life was like before my conversion. And so, please note this. Paul says seven things about his life before Christ, and all of these were things that he once put his trust in and his confidence in to to gain approval with God. And so, he begins... In verse 5, he said, I had the right beginning. He said, circumcise the eighth day. Uh, Circumcision was prescribed in the Old Testament. It was performed on the eighth day, uh, a cutting of the foreskin of the male, and it signified them being set apart unto God. There was no redemptive value in it whatsoever. It was simply a, a sign or a ritual of what must take place in their heart one day later. And that is what he was talking about in in verse 3, the true circumcision, that's a metaphor for the new birth, when your heart is pierced and cut. But Paul says, I had the right beginning. No one can give a a better beginning than, than me. I was circumcised on the eighth day. And then he says, he had the right nationality of the nation Israel. Paul says, I was born into God's chosen people, into God's covenant people. And then he says, I had the right tribe. So, within the nation, the tribe of Benjamin was the elite nation. Uh, The tribe of Benjamin, when they divided up the land, 
That's where Jerusalem is. Uh, That's where the temple is. It's at the very epicenter of the religious and spiritual life of, of, of Israel, where the land was apportioned to the tribe of Benjamin, and the first king of Israel came out of the tribe of, of Benjamin. In fact, Paul was named for him King Saul. He was Saul of Tarsus, and Benjamin was one of the two tribes that remained loyal to King David. So, what a pedigree. What, what, what a resume Paul has going here for himself. And That's good observation and good information about the significance of being from that tribe. That's good, good uh, background information. So this is all adding to it. He's doing a great job painting the picture that Paul's like, here's all that I had going for me. See, typically, it it is interesting. I I do like the way the testimony is because typically you're taught, you tell everyone how bad you were. I was messed up. I was messed. I I think this this is very interesting. I think that Philippians 3 would be a good testimony to teach kids who are raised in a Christian home, right? Because a lot of kids raised in a Christian home, what they're taught is that you have to have this testimony of, I was a drug dealer. I was in charge of a gang. We killed 14 people. I worshiped Satan. I used to sacrifice, I, 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 you know, a cat every night at midnight. I was a witch. You know, you, you, you're almost taught that the worst the, the worse your behavior was, the more powerful your testimony. And you're almost encouraged, at least in some churches at a, at a certain period of time, to really almost, I hate to say embellish, but man, they wanted you to tell the bad stuff. Tell everyone how bad you were, tell them you're saved, and now tell everyone how good you are, right? That, that's, that's the way it's supposed to be. I love this, that he's telling everyone supposedly how good I was. See, I... I, I, I was doing everything right. I was circumcised. I was this tribe. A lot of Christian kids need to be here that in a testimony of you can be raised in a Christian home and do all the right things. You didn't lie to your parents. You didn't disobey. You didn't sneak out. You didn't do this. You didn't do this. You didn't have sex. You, you, you did everything good, but that was your righteousness. And at some point you had to consider your righteousness nothing but dung so that you could cl- find and obtain the righteousness that comes by faith and imputed righteousness because your righteousness wasn't good enough to get you into heaven, even though it was good enough to make everyone in church think you're the greatest kid ever and that every parent wished that their, their kid was like you and everyone thinks that you were great and everyone probably thought you were saved. That this So this testimony... I think I think there's a lot of it would have some very good purposes teaching this to a a classroom full of church kids who've grown up in the church, raised in the church, who probably don't think that they're that bad or that much of a sinner. They need to realize no matter how good they are, their righteousness is not sufficient to please a holy God. And it's not about trying to be more righteous. It's not about trying to do more good things. It's about Throw it, casting all of that righteousness off as dung and grabbing onto, not grabbing onto, by obtaining a righteousness that is imputed to them by faith. All right? Someone just said they love that point about kids growing up in a Christian home. Well, thank you. But I just, that's what struck me when I'm listening to this. I'm like, man, this is really good because kids raised in a Christian home, they're like, man, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't even watch movies that have bad words and I, I don't even go to Disney. And I, I, I mean, look at me. I mean, I'm doing really, really good. It that doesn't have anything to do with salvation. Okay. Salvation is about a faith and a, a, a perfect savior who died for you because you're still a sinner. 
Even though you didn't do all of these things, we, 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 we so reduce it just to actions. And well, we could go all day on that, but all right, we want to continue. But yeah, I think that's a very good point here. That's, well, he, he's making the point. I'm just going, whoa, that's, that's the, I just took his point and kind of went on my own direction with it. Then he moves on. He says, I had the right upbringing. Uh, he grew up going to Awana, for heaven's sakes. He, he, had, he was a VBS poster child. Look what he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. You can't be any more Hebrew than a Hebrew of Hebrews. He probably ate Hebrew hot dogs. I mean, who knows? A Hebrew of Hebrews, that, that means he, he was the son of Hebrew parents. He was raised in a Hebrew home. He was taught the Hebrew language. He grew up with Hebrew tradition. He, he learned the Hebrew customs. He was a die-hard, card-carrying Hebrew. You can't be any more Hebrew than this. And then he said he had the right standard by which he lived his life. Notice he says, to the law, a Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee, that was, these were the arch-conservatives in the nation of Israel. If you weren't born again, you, you probably would have been a Pharisee because they believed the Bible. They, they believed it cover to cover. Uh, they, they believed in the sovereignty of God. Uh, they believed in the supernatural. They believed in angels. They believed in miracles. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in life after death. They believed in heaven. They believed in hell. They, they, they were they were as tightly orthodox to a point. And they were lost, right? Which is why this testimony is so powerful to kids raised in a Christian home. They got all, they got all of these things down. I mean, I mean, they would just use a little bit different language. This is being used as, you know, a, a religious, spiritual, orthodox Jew. We could just change the language to a spiritual, quote-unquote, orthodox Christian, all right, and biblical, you know, you believe this, you believe this, you believe this, unless you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and obtained an imputed righteousness, all of those other things. I, I know if I say, but dung, I know some Christian parents are like, no, 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 don't say that because I want my kids doing all. I think some kids, I, and I, I hate to say this, I think what some parents want is they want their children following all the rules more than they want their children to have an imputed righteousness. I think some parents want their children to have a practical righteousness far more than they want their child to have an imputed righteousness. M most Christian parents are more concerned about a practical righteousness than an imputed righteousness. But the practical righteousness may help you sleep better at night thinking, well, my kid's not doing anything anything wrong, but it doesn't help them for eternity. Right? Yeah, we, we could turn this into a podcast all by itself. This, this, but, but we'll, we'll continue here. As anyone could possibly be, they were the Bible-believing sect within Israel, and they were so circumspect that they would not even fellowship with or rub shoulders with other Jews. The word Pharisee simply means a, a separatist. They had separated themselves, not just from the Egyptians and the Babylonians and, and uh, the Assyrians and the others, they separated themselves from the other Jewish people. They, they wanted to be the holy huddle. They were the inner circle. And, and, and Paul 
was at the very center of the inner circle of this holy club. Uh, You couldn't be any more striving to be set apart from the world unto God than than a Pharisee. And then in verse 6, he had the right passion. He says, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. Paul didn't have a dead orthodoxy. He, He was fired up. That's what the word zeal means. It means an excitement of mind. It means heat of soul. Uh, We could put it this way. Paul was all in in his religious attempt to put confidence in his own flesh, to commend himself to God. Okay, we're going to go a little bit further. We're going to try to at least get close. I want to see if we can get close to verse 10. And then what I'll do is probably take about a five or 10 minute break. We'll come right back and then do another review. And then we'll take another break and then come right back and then do what day 28, 29 of our 30 days, our 30 scriptures in 30 days. So we got a lot to do over the next few hours. So hopefully you'll join us for everything. And also if you're using an Apple device, the Church One update is now available if you're using an Apple device, which will now allow you to listen to sermons while using other apps or the screen is off. So a lot of people have been asking for that. I just, I was, when I was doing the reading of Philippians 3, I was getting those kinds of notifications about what was going on. But I, I can tell you now, you'll just have to search for Church One. If you just look where you typically look for your updates on the Apple device, you'll have to actually search for Church One and then Click on it, and then it'll say update, and then you can update the app. So for uh, Android users, you know, what can I say? All right, buy an Apple device. All right, here we go. But let's see if we can make this a little further. <laughs> we can. Um, the, it's coming for Android. It's coming. It'll be there probably in the next 24 hours. All right, all right. But here we go. Let's, let's continue. So much so, he was a, a persecutor of the church. He wasn't passive. He was an aggressor. He wasn't sitting up in the grandstands. He was down on the field in the midst of trying to stamp out the name of Jesus Christ and trying to literally destroy the church. So he he had the right passion. He, He was on fire for what he was committed to. And then finally, he had the right uh the right morality. It says, as to the righteousness which is in the law. Now, when Paul says that, he means external rules keeping. He means legalistic righteousness. He means a works righteousness. I hate that word legalistic righteousness for this case because some people will get in their mouth. Well, I'm not a legalist. It doesn't matter if you're a legalist. The issue is, are you clinging to and looking to fleshly works and righteousness to somehow either in your mind make you saved or in your mind proves that you're saved. Because if you're looking to to your fleshly, earthly righteousness to prove you're saved, you're looking to the wrong thing because all of that righteousness cannot prove you're saved because there's people who can have that earthly, fleshly righteousness who are not saved. Therefore, it can never be a test of salvation. I know everyone preaches it like, no, if you're truly saved, you'll do this, 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 and this. It can't be a proof of salvation because the Pharisees were doing many of the things you would have on your list and they weren't saved. 
right? Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? Depart from me. I never knew you. So what do I look to for salvation? The imputed righteousness, my faith in his death, burial, and resurrection. Do I have faith in that? Am I trusting in his righteousness alone? Practical righteousness can never be used to prove the obtaining of an imputed righteousness because an imputed righteousness, well, is imputed. It's accredited to your account. It's not infused inside of you. It declares you to be righteous, even though you are not righteous. I wish, I wish the, so, uh, so much of Christianity has this so confused today, but all right, we will, well, I want to, I want to see if we can get close to verse 10. All right, here we go. He goes, as to the righteousness, which is in the law, Paul, Paul says, I was found blameless. Now, he would say blameless simply because he hadn't murdered anyone. He hadn't committed physical adultery with anyone. He, he was outwardly moral and externally upright. No one could match Paul before his conversion concerning his efforts to commend himself to find acceptance with God. Everyone else was behind Paul. He had everything going for him, the right beginning, circumcised, the right nationality, Israel, the right tribe, Benjamin, the right upbringing, Hebrew, the right standard of Pharisee, the right passion, zeal, the right morality, blameless. Paul was religious to his eyeballs. He had external religion, but he had no internal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He was like a man in quicksand. The harder he tried, the... Okay, I, I'm going to just jump in here. He, he had external righteousness. It's not about an internal ra- relationship because, see, again, if, if you're not careful, you almost say they had external righteousness, but they didn't have an internal righteousness. I know that's not what Steve Lawson is saying, so I would say it this way. They had an external fleshly righteousness, but they did not have an imputed righteousness that comes by faith. The imputed righteousness is outside of us. It's accredited to our account. Whenever we start talking about something internal, we start, it almost, you start sliding over into Roman Catholicism where you, it's about an infused righteousness, which is what the entire Protestant Reformation was about. No, they did not have an imputed righteousness. They were holding, holding on to a, a flesh based righteousness, they were missing an imputed righteousness, which would be accredited to their account by faith. He just pointed that the difference was they had external religion, but not an internal relationship. No, they had external religion. They did not have an imputed righteousness, which we gain by faith. That I I just, we have, I just, I got to drive that point home because so much of the Protestant world has almost abandoned the idea of imputed righteousness and almost have borrowed this idea of some kind of an infused righteousness, which is directly from Roman Catholicism. And I wouldn't even have noticed so much of what Protestant Christianity was doing until, well, I decided to attend a Catholic university to work on a degree on Catholic theology because I wanted to be able to speak about Catholicism from a position of knowledge, not one of ignorance. And it was in that process that I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think I think there are Protestant churches out there that are better, better Catholics than Catholics. 
Because in a roundabout way, we, we start teaching almost this infused righteousness, this infused righteousness. And no, it's imputed. It's imputed. It's imputed. I cannot stress that enough. The deeper he sinks, religion and morality never saved anyone. Hell is full of sincere, religious, good people. The fact is, there's only been one good person, and that was Christ. Being good is never good enough because God demands perfection. And there's not a person on planet earth who has met the standard of perfection. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so it was with Paul. Paul had everything except the one thing. He had everything except Jesus Christ, and so therefore he was perishing, and he was lost. That was where he was. Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you grew up in a Christian family. Maybe you grew up in a Christian school. And maybe you had Christian friends, and maybe you're surrounded by Christian influences, and maybe you're trying to live by Christian values. But despite all of this, none of that will save you. There is only one who can save you, and that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so Paul begins his testimony, and he doesn't glory in it. He puts it out there to show us that if anyone could put confidence in the flesh, it would be Paul. If anyone could work their way to heaven, it would be Paul. Paul had to come to the place where he realized that the cross is the only way of salvation. It's not a ladder. It's a cross. So this leads us now to verse 7. All right, we'll have to stop there because now verse 7, he transitions after out of that point. All that point was awesome. Everything he said was wonderful. Everything he said was great. Hopefully, my adding to it proved to be somewhat beneficial. That still doesn't get us to verse 10 where we can test our, our hypothesis, our theory, our thesis, but we're getting there. The good thing is this sermon actually deals with Philippians 3.10, versus the other sermons we reviewed that literally ignored the actual text, okay? So we're at least getting there, all right? I don't, I'm not going to go back and review everything else. What we'll do is we're going to take a break, about five, ten minutes, then we'll turn right back around, start again, and what we will do is try to finish this review. We want to finish this review today because I think it's, it's if we can try to keep it all together, it will be better instead of breaking it up by days. I, I know this is going to delay getting to the, 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 the thing we need to do with the 30 scriptures in 30 days, but I promise I will get to that one way or the other. We will get to that, okay? Maybe 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock tonight, but we will get to that, all right? So we're going to take a break. We'll be right back, maybe five minutes, and then we'll jump right back in. We've got this saved. I'm, I'm going to ahead and write this down. We're 16 minutes and 22 seconds into this sermon. 16, 22, all right? So we'll back it up maybe two seconds. We'll jump back. And when we come back in, I'm not going to go back and... Uh, 
I, well, I don't know. Well, when my introduction, I'll try to be a little, uh, this one took a lot longer. We took 30 minutes almost in the introduction, but I had to once again say, here are the different ways of interpreting it. Here's what's being presented to us. Here's our thesis. Now we're going to listen to this one that challenges us and see what we think. I've already presented some of my challenges to it and some of my problems with it, but we'll, I'll, I will be able to even do more so as we hear Steve Lawson supposedly present that view. And so we will do that coming up in about five minutes. All right. Thanks for listening. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. do apologize at the beginning when I was reading Philippians 3. I was extremely distracted. I was getting messages and there were emails coming in. And then, um, yeah, there was just, there was too much going on. And I was trying not to look at anything else, but it sometimes happens. So I do apologize for that. But I think it all turned out to be, hopefully, we've now established some good context and some good information. So now we are ready for Philippians 3.10, and we'll get to that in about five minutes. Thanks for listening. We'll be back here shortly. God bless.